0: This is Christian Kuhn of Urban Village Church in Chicago. Welcome back to my sermon podcast as we continue our sermon series called Stranger Things. And I'll talk about that in a moment. But today, let's take a look at the Gospel of Mark. This is the passage that I'll be focusing on. It comes from chapter 11, and I'm going to read verses 15 through 25. Here are these words. Actually... I'm going to back that up. I'm going to start at verse 12. So this is uh, Mark 11, verses 12 through 25. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see whether perhaps he would find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Then they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. And he overturned the the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching and saying, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And when the chief priests and the scribes heard it, they kept looking for a way to kill him. For they were afraid of him, because the whole crowd was spellbound by his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I tell you, if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and if you do not doubt in your heart, but believe that what you say will come to pass, it will be done for you. So I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. May God's blessing be on the reading and hearing and living out of this word. If you've ever gone to my website you and read my bio, you know that I often will put that or in that description that I'm a fan of ice cream. Uh, as I've gotten older and go to my annual physical every year, I sometimes seem to gain a pound or two, and I know that ice cream is probably contributing to that. Even though I still exercise pretty regularly, uh, my metabolism certainly has slowed over the years. So I know that and it's just something that I can't quite give up yet. It's always, I find, a pretty satisfying way to end a meal. So uh, I have lots of favorites over the years uh, and Edie's is something, is one uh, brand that I that we enjoy. And so several years ago, it was a, a pint of, I think it was chocolate chip. And so I was had dinner and was ready to open up the top and dive into the ice cream. And as I took that first scoop, it's always that whenever it's a brand new carton and you go for that first scoop, you know, that's going to be the best one in the whole, in the whole pint. But as I did so and, and pulled out the ice cream in the scooper, I noticed what looked like a couple of different things in the ice cream that were not chocolate chips. Uh, and they certainly were not part of the ice cream as I kind of cleaned off what these little things were, I realized they were little pieces of glass in the ice cream. And I was just so flabbergasted by this. Uh, And so I set them aside. And actually, I can't remember if I called or wrote Edie's to let them know. And they apologized and sent me a couple of coupons for free ice cream, which is great. But I thought, what would have happened if I would have eaten this? It was one of the most vivid examples I've had in my life of thinking I'm going to get something that I really am looking forward to and then realizing this is not what I was expecting at all and became pretty frustrating too because I was so looking forward to this and there was no way, of course, I was going to eat any more of that particular ice cream. Well, I mentioned earlier that we're in this um, series called Stranger Things where we're talking about passages in the Gospels that are slightly bizarre, and we don't quite know what to make of them. I think I mentioned last week that um, in the church there is this pattern of scriptures that churches can preach from, called the lectionary, and it covers about seventy percent of the Bible. But these some of these passages that we're choosing for this sermon series do not or did not make the cut, and that includes today's. This is not in the lectionary, so it doesn't get preached on as much. And part of me can understand why, because on the face of it, it doesn't make sense, but. I think once we explore a little bit, we may find something that we weren't expecting. And in this case, hopefully it's something that uh, is something that we desire. So at first glance, when we read this passage, when I read it again this week, it seems like I always like passages that talk about or show Jesus as human. And this seems to do so at the beginning. It says right off the bat that Jesus was hungry. Sometimes we forget uh, that Jesus had human um, desires and So it says uh, here that uh, he needed something to eat. But as we keep reading, uh, we find and wonder, why is Jesus so temperamental here? Maybe it's that phrase that we sometimes hear these days called hangry. These are when we have a hunger and we're not getting anything to satisfy that hunger, and so we get angry. And so maybe Jesus was hangry in this passage because we ask ourselves, why would Jesus act this way? Why is he expecting A tree to bear fruit when it wasn't the time of the year to bear fruit. And so we might have chalked this up to other passages that we read about Jesus. Well, this just shows Jesus is human and he could maybe be a little temperamental at times. I don't know if that's quite what's being, some scholars believe that, that that's how we should interpret this, but I'm not sure that this is perhaps the way that we should look at this if we read all of what we read today. As I noted also last week, that in all of these, um, passages these strange passages that we'll be reading throughout this series we will no doubt be will come across different scholarly interpretations of what the text might say and that's the case here too there scholars disagree about what this passage means but there's one interpretation and I got this from a a book called interpretation uh, of the gospel of mark by a scholar named Lamar Williamson and his take on it was one that really intrigued me I want to share that with you today Williamson believes that actually that the fig tree is a symbol for Israel or for the Jewish people. Because the, if you in remembering reading through this passage, we see here that the fig tree is the fig tree story. Jesus comes to the fig tree, curses it, and then goes to the temple and then comes back to the fig tree. So the temple going to the temple uh, and also the fig tree are paired here in Mark. And that's the only place uh, it happens throughout the gospels. And so Williamson believes, perhaps, that the fig tree is a symbol for Israel or for the Jewish people. On the face of it, both seem to be thriving. That perhaps this is a comment, just like the fig tree, when you first go up to it, you think it's going to bear fruit, but you realize it doesn't. And the same could be said, according to this interpretation, of the faith of what was going on and you might look at the temple and if you looked at the temple there was a lot of activities going going on and one might look at it and think wow this there's a lot happening here but we realize when we take a closer look both at the tree and at the temple that there is no fruit being born here you know, why is that well, this interpretation would say that Jesus is placing the blame on the religious authorities. And we see how he reacts. He overturns tables. He accuses the leaders there of turning what should be a house of prayer into a den of robbers. Dr. Williamson says this in his, uh, in his rendering of this passage. He says, The chief priests and scribes understand the implications of Jesus' words. Jesus does not attack the temple per se, but their way of running it. Their leadership and teaching. That the fig tree withers next day from the roots up reinforces the idea that the fate of the temple is due to the more abound spiritual leadership, which is at the root of temple worship. So, in other words, this interpretation says that Jesus wasn't criticizing the temple, but instead he was criticizing those who were running things. Again, the fig tree and the temple, on the face of it, looks like things are happening here, that there's life, but when you really dig down to the roots, both the temple and the fig tree, you realize uh, that something needs to be done here. And in this case, the fig tree is cursed. Uh, and in this case, tables are overturned at the temple. This is an indictment against what Williamson calls sterile religion and leaders. And I wonder when we think about churches these days, if the same might be true of a fair number of churches. I remember several years ago, I was went to a trip in Paris. And of course, whenever you go to Europe There are always the opportunities to see old churches, and I think often these days those old churches are really opportunities to go and look and gaze and look at the marvelous art or architecture, and I wonder sometimes if it's forgotten that many of these churches are still places of worship. This is a place to experience the presence of God. In fact, one of these churches I was in Paris, as I walked up to it, there was a sign outside that said, this is a church, not a museum. And I wonder if that might be the motto of some, maybe many churches these days, that they have forgotten that they are actually places of worship, places where we should experience the presence of God and not just museums, not just places that have interesting architecture or maybe stained glass or a museum that harkens back to the good old days. If you go to a church, would that or could that be the same that's said of yours? of your place of worship? And I cast no blame here on anyone. I think it's been happening with many, many churches. Jesus is doing things here to try to shake things up and to try to make a point. So where does he go next? Well, that's when he starts talking about faith and prayer and forgiveness. And he makes hyperbole, he uses hyperbole to make his point. I don't think Jesus is literally means here that if you have the Uh, a a robust faith that you'll be able to take a look at a, a mountain and throw it into the sea. But instead, I think Jesus is using exaggerated language to make his point, to let and shake people up and have them take a hard look at their own faith lives and their own practices of their faith lives. Do you have the kind of bold, audacious faith, the kind of prayer life where you feel like, and you understand, and you believe that God can do remarkable things here, so much so that you could tell that mountain to move, and it would. Do we, as people of God, have that kind of bold, audacious faith, or has it died off? And when it comes to prayer, Jesus talks about prayer in this passage. Has prayer become something in your life that is peripheral and not central? I was reading a book uh, by Sue Nilsson Kibbe called uh, Floodgates and talking about different ways that churches can revive. And one chapter is about prayer. And she says that she fears these days that churches see prayer as something to snack on rather than to feast on. It's not the main course. Uh, It's an appetizer, if that at all. And I wonder, too, when churches get to be that way, And then an outsider comes to the church, maybe hoping that they're going to get something wonderful, that they're going to meet God, but instead they realize that this is not what I expected. They come seeking ice cream perhaps, and find glass instead. Have you ever known someone for whom their faith life and their spiritual practices are central and not peripheral? It makes a difference, I think, in people that I've met over the years for whom that's the case, and there's just something different about them. They trust and believe that God is going to do something in their life or in the world, and they center themselves, they arrange themselves in a way to make sure that that happens. Whenever I think of this topic, I think of a story I read many years ago uh, by an author that I've quoted before, one that I always... um, have always admired Named Barbara Brown Taylor. She's a Episcopalian priest and writer. She wrote a book called Leaving Church, where she talks, uh, talked about her own uh, experience of being a priest and then deciding that she wanted to do something else instead, and instead went into teaching at a local college and became a writer. She tells a story, though, about Sabbath and about a person for whom Sabbath was so central. This was a Jewish friend of hers. I'm going to read now from this this book. And she says this. She says, when I was a junior in high school, my boyfriend, Herb, played on the varsity basketball team. He was not the star player, however. The star player was a boy named David who scored so many points during his four-year career that the coach retired his jersey when he graduated. This would have been remarkable under any circumstances, but it was doubly so since David did not play on Friday nights. On Friday nights, David observed the Sabbath with the rest of his family, who generously withdrew when David's Gentile friends arrived sweaty and defeated after Friday night home games. David would sit there in his kippah, openly delighted with the blow-by-blow description of the game. While the Shabbat candles still flickered on the supper table, every light in the room was on a timer, When one of them clicked off, signaling bedtime, all David had to do was nod, and one of us would turn it back on again. We were David's Shabbat goyim, his Gentile friends, who could do things for him on the Sabbath that he could not do for himself, which sometimes included making popcorn in the kosher kitchen. I still remember the night someone asked David if it did not kill him to have to sit home on Friday nights while his team was getting slaughtered in the high school gymnasium. No one makes me do this, he said. I'm a Jew, and Jews observe the Sabbath. Six days a week, he said he loved nothing more than playing basketball, and he just as gladly gave all he had to the game. On the seventh day, he loved being a Jew more than he loved playing basketball, and he was just and he just as gladly gave all that he had to the Sabbath. Sure, he felt a tug, but that was the whole point. Sabbath was his chance to remember what was really real. I like this story for a number of reasons. It's always somewhat convicting me, not just about the Sabbath, but to think about a person for whom something was so central that he would sacrifice everything else in order to observe this one thing. I think so often, and I fall into this trap sometimes too, that our faith becomes not the main thing, but instead something peripheral, and we're unwilling to sacrifice anything for it. And yet, when we do make prayer in our faith life central, everything else seems to fall into place. When I talk about this or preach this sermon at the church that I'm serving right now, River Forest United Methodist, as we explore the possibility of a partnership with with Urban Village, I'm going to challenge them, and I'm challenge all of us. This. this is not necessarily just for River Forest. This is for anybody at at your own church. Over the next few weeks uh, and months at River Forest, we're going to be going to be discerning, you know, whether to uh, take part in this partnership, and Urban Village will be discerning this too. But I don't want this discernment to be something that we just do offhandedly, or to do something that we would uh, be a last-minute decision. I want I want us to really take part in the spiritual discernment, and make prayer and make prayer so central that it influences absolutely everything. I don't want prayer to be something that we tack on at the beginning or an end of a meeting, or the beginning of a meal. I mean, these are fine. But what would it look like for prayer to become central, an integral part of who you are, that you are a person of prayer? And we're going to be doing some things over the next few weeks to live into that. Things like prayer walks, both in the church and in the surrounding village, and a group about prayer and uh, putting post-it notes up around the church saying that we've prayed for these things to see what, what is God going to do in the midst of this church. And I think this might have been what this passage is getting at. That perhaps this passage is saying that we do not, we cannot afford the luxury of having a faith that looks like it's okay on the outside, but really is wilting on the inside. And this, I think, is what angered Jesus about the temple and what he was trying perhaps to say with the symbol of this fig tree. And this is why he was speaking in such strong terms and speaking in hyperbole. when he was saying, if you believe in your heart that something will come to pass, it will be done for you. Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. The kind of faith that boldly asks. And I'm not, again, I'm not asking us to take this literally where we say to something like, I want a new television set and that we'll get it tomorrow. I think Jesus is getting at what's behind this kind of relationship that you have with God, the the kind of relationship with the God that you can consistently, that you make prayer central in your life, and that you can come before God boldly and expect something to happen, something miraculous, something surprising, something that we did not know was going to happen. Do you have that kind of faith? Are you interested in that kind of faith? Are you part of church that will make that central This, I think, is what Jesus desires, and I think this will be a key component, if not the component, for revival in our churches. Too, for too long, this kind of faith has has not been central, and I think that needs to change. That needs to change so that one day someone might come into your place of faith, and they will feel the difference. They will come in expecting something sweet. (laughs) something that will taste so good, something that will be delightful to be experienced. And that's exactly, that's exactly what they will get. May it be so for you and for your places of worship. Amen. Well, friends, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. We'll be back again next week. As always, you can reach out to me, christian at urbanvillagechurch.org or my website, christiancoon.com. Uh, I put up this past week, um, you can listen to my other podcast, Failing Boldly. And for those of you who are fans of advice columnists, and maybe you've read Ask Amy, uh, She is um, on; she's a guest on my other podcast, and that's on my website. So you can take a look at that or take a listen to that rather. So friends, until the next time that we're together, may the peace of Christ be with you.